Hey everybody, thank you all for tuning into this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you want to learn more about this project, you can do so at the podcast website. You can go to lastborninthewilderness.com. That link will be in the description of this episode as well. By going to that website, you'll find links to the YouTube page, to all the various streaming sites that this podcast is now on, which includes SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Um, you'll also find a link to the one-time donation page and also to contact information. And also, you will find a link to the podcast Patreon page. You can find a link to that in the description of this episode as well, or you can just go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. By going to that site, you can make very small monthly contributions. The smallest amount you can contribute a month is a dollar a month. Um, and every little bit that is donated monthly helps. Um, without any further delay, on with the episode. Thank you. episode, I speak with Johan Hari, journalist and author of Lost Connections, uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions, as well as Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. In this conversation, Johan goes over some of the themes in his latest book, Lost Connections, which includes exploring some of the root causes of depression and anxiety understanding some of the deep misconceptions we have in Western societies about treating anxiety and depression, as well as pointing to the possibility and the potential for radical change to occur in alleviating these mental health issues we see permeating throughout our society. So I, I just really thank Johan for taking the time to do this. We had scheduled this thing a few months in advance. His publicist was really kind and sent me a copy of the book, uh, Lost Connections, which I read, and I really enjoyed reading that book a great deal. 
um, as somebody who, like so many other people I know in my life that has suffered from deep bouts of depression and um, has experienced anxiety in their life, um, reading a book that actually validates a lot of the a lot of the ideas that have now been circulating in our culture and society for a few years now, which provides an alternative understanding and narrative regarding depression and anxiety in our society, instead of it being this incredibly reductionist, mechanistic understanding of depression, which reduces it down to a chemical imbalance in the brain. You know, Johan was was really great in this book in that he started with himself and understanding that you know, no matter what kind of medication he took, no matter the dosage of the antidepressants that he was taking, it just wasn't alleviating the core pain, the real issue at the root of his depression. So he went on this long uh, adventure um, seeking, maybe adventure is not the right word, but, you know, he went on a long journey uh, seeking, you know, speaking to so many different scientists and researchers and people who are doing all kinds of things across a broad spectrum so he can get a better and deeper understanding of the causes of depression and um, how to work our way out of this bind that we have gotten ourselves into in Western societies. So I thank Johan for going over some of the themes of this book in this episode. And I'd also like to state that Johan only had about uh, 35 to 40 minutes to speak with me. So unfortunately, I couldn't get into some of the questions that I had to deeply we couldn't get into those subjects too deeply in this episode but i think that by listening to this you might be activated and want to go out and read the book yourself which i encourage people to do so um i thank you all for your attention and without any further delay on my part on with the episode with johan hari thank you yeah so so you've been i mean <laughs> when i was contacting uh, your publicist she, she was very kind to send me a copy of your book and i was reading it but at the same time while i was reading it i kept on seeing you I mean, you were popping up all over the place i mean you're getting interviewed on <laughs> all kinds of different podcasts on talk shows um i've seen just videos of you discussing your book so i imagine at this point you have repeated yourself and said the same things over and over and over again so i hope that with this conversation this interview i can maybe bring up a few unique questions that maybe we could go in that direction maybe a little later in this interview but for at least the very beginning of this thing if you wouldn't mind going over some of the uh, premises of your book and like why you decided to write a book about anxiety and depression and explore the various uh, paths that you went down with this thing I think that'd be great my my youngest nephew Ben um, (laughs) always takes the piss out of me because um, he uh, he's I gave a TED talk a couple of years ago and he's watched me basically give that same talk like loads of times so now he basically always uses those phrases back to me so one of the things i say is like um the opposite of addiction is connection in the speech and so he often says to me things like if i say like you know ben will you pass me a diet coke he'll go johan the opposite of diet coke (laughs) (laughs) and he started to do the same thing with me talking about the new book as well he started like ironically mimicking back my uh but yeah the the reason so the reason I wanted to write Lost Connections is because um, there were these two kind of mysteries that were hanging over me. The first was I'm 39 years old. Every year I've been alive almost, depression and anxiety have increased in the Western world. And I wanted to know what, what's going on. Why is this happening? It was a more personal mystery for me, which is when I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor and I'd explained that I had this feeling like 
pain was kind of leaking out of me and I couldn't control it or regulate it. I felt very ashamed of it. My doctor told me a story about why I felt this way. It was an entirely biological story. He said, there's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people naturally lack it. You're clearly one of them. Um, what you need is just these drugs. They'll boost your serotonin levels. You'll feel better. And so I started taking a drug called Paxil. It made me feel much better. Uh, for a few months and then this feeling of pain started to bleed back through so I went back he said oh I didn't give you a high enough dose I took a higher dose again I felt better again the feeling of pain came back and I was in this cycle until I was taking the maximum possible dose for for 13 years at which point I was still depressed and experiencing all sorts of horrible side effects so I ended up going on this big journey to really just figure out what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them and I, I went to ended up traveling over 40,000 miles from San Francisco to Sydney to Sao Paulo and sitting with the leading experts in the world on these questions and people who have very different perspectives from an Amish village in Indiana because the Amish have very low levels of depression to a city in Brazil where they banned advertising to see if that would reduce people's depression to a lab in Baltimore where they're giving people psychedelics to see if that would help them and yeah. I think the main thing I, the many things I learned, but, but one of them is I realized that <clears throat> when I was a teenager, until I went to my doctor, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning, you know, I was weak, I needed to pull myself together, I needed to man up, insert whatever stigmatizing cliche you want. And then for the next 13 years, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning it was just the kind of chemical imbalance in my brain. And what I learned is there are the scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are biological and very real, but most of them are not in our heads. Most of them are in the way we're living, and that requires us to think very differently about why we feel this way and how to find our way out of it. Mm. Right. Yeah, so the way that, that and I love reading your book um, because it starts off with this like very personal experience that you're having, which I think a lot of people can relate with, which is, you know, this feeling of pain. I love how you describe that, the, the feeling of pain leaking out of you. Like, um, you just can't even contain it. You know, you try to go on with your day and your life as if nothing is going on or nothing is wrong with you. But uh, ultimately, that's going to spill out into your, you know, your your day to day life, your relationships and where you're working and where you go to school or whatever you're doing. Um, and, you know, when you when you do become very depressed, it's really hard to, um to to even do the basic functions of of everyday life and and so so I think what's so great about your book is you start at that point but then of course you have this ability to explore why that's the case and as you talk about in your book um you know you were fed this narrative which I think is a profitable narrative for certain groups of people for certain uh, companies which is that um, it's all in your head. It's a it's a chemical imbalance. Basically, your brain is like a machine that needs to be, uh, you know, it, it needs a certain thing. So we're going to give you this pill, and it's going to balance everything out without addressing any of the, uh, any of the issues that might be, you know, in your life, like any of the problems that might have, um, that might actually be very real in your day to day existence, um, and you know, treating you like you're a, a machine. Is, is I think very much a, something that stems from Western culture. And um, I know that you're British and, and I'm an American, but I think we, <laughs> you know, we come from sort of a, a similar uh, 
culture, I guess, if, if that's the right way to say that. You people. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? I said my country invented you people, right? Exactly. You know, exactly, exactly. I, I've been, I actually just went over to Europe recently and um, for the very first time, and it was really quite a fascinating experience to, to go there as an American and, and to feel what that feels like. It's, it's kind of an, it's just, it, to sort of go on a tangent there, but, but ultimately, um, you know, the roots of the problem, it, it really seems like it stems from society. It stems from our cultural values, which you go into great depth in, in your book and you talk about. So that's really what I wanted to talk more about in this thing is, is to talk about how in your book, you touch on a few stories and a few a few places that you go to. One of them is in Berlin. Um, I want to say that I, I'm going to mispronounce it. I say Cody. Is it K O T I? This Cody. Uh, okay. <laughs> this uh, neighborhood where um, people who seemingly have nothing in common. You know, you have uh, Turkish uh, immigrants. Uh, you have the kind of radical leftists. Yeah. You, know, you have. I can't remember other groups of people there, but there's a whole slew of people that really don't seem to have much in common. Um, but because they had a common interest in dealing with this this rent crisis, this this hike in rent um, in in their community, they decided to come together and eventually they found enough common ground and they developed a real strong sense of community and a lot of the alienation and isolation that these people had felt was in many ways alleviated. And what you, of course, you were drawing from that, uh, those experience of those people is that by developing a, a sense of community and developing connections with one another, these people were able to um, overcome some of these, um, you know, anxiety or depression or whatever it may be. Um, another example that you gave, of course, was a uh, bike shop. I believe, I want to say it was Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania. I can't remember exactly where. Baltimore? Yeah. Okay. Um, and there was a co-op. Well, originally it wasn't a co-op. The the, the the characters that you discuss in this this part of the book, they originally work for a, a small business. They decide to start a union. Of course, that goes up against the <laughs> the way that that business wants to be run. So they end up leaving and starting a co-op where everybody is participating in this. Uh, they're all, they all take on more responsibility in this business and how it's run. And ultimately that makes people feel less powerless. It makes them feel like they're um, com- connected to something bigger than themselves. So what I feel like your book is so good at is, is taking your personal story and then it, you challenged yourself. You went out and explored as you know why this is the case, and what it seems to be ultimately is that we are not connected to one another any longer, and that the value systems of our culture of Western civilization seems to create these serious mental health issues in in these societies and in these cultures. So, I guess what I wanted to ask you, if I could, sorry to ramble on like that, but if I could maybe summarize that into some sort of question, which is when you were writing this book and you were coming across these examples of people finding community and finding alternative ways of, of existing, I guess that you could say, did it ever like kind of come out to you that maybe the solutions that we need are really deeply radical in that the way that we have to really deal with this widespread issue of anxiety and depression in, in American society or British society or, or Western society more generally, Western civilization more generally, is that there needs to be a radical restructuring of our economic system, our social systems, and our value systems? Well, I'm trying to be guided by what the best experts say about this. 
And the World Health Organization is the leading medical body in the world. Um, and they said mental health is produced socially. It's a social indicator. It needs social as well as individual solutions. And at first when I read that, I thought I wasn't entirely sure I understood what it meant. And I kept looking at, for example, the UN's leading doctor on these questions said last year for World Health Day, we needed to talk less about chemical imbalances, more about power imbalances. And it was kind of, although I had been trained in the social sciences, it seemed so, bear in mind that story I was told was so heavily biological. I was very committed to this heavily biological story about depression. When you've got a story about your pain, even when that story doesn't work very well, it kind of structures your distress. It structures your pain. It's like putting a leash on a wild animal. At least you know where it is. I was very reluctant to screw with that story. But the more I learned, the more I realized that the story I was telling was just way too simplistic. It's not that it's totally false. So there are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety. Pretty much all scientists agree on this. There are biological causes, which are very real, things like your genes. There are real brain changes, although I don't think they should be characterized as a chemical imbalance for reasons we can talk about. There are psychological causes, which are how you feel about yourself. And there are social causes, which are how we live together. And all three of them are real and all three need to be dealt with. We need to stop telling a simplistic story and start telling a complex story. But it's only when you understand the more complex picture that you begin to find more meaningful solutions, which is not to say the solutions that are currently offered, chemical antidepressants and a bit of therapy have no value. They have some value, but they're not solving the problem for most people. They're giving some relief to some people and they have some value, but they're not solving. Problem. So I'll give you a very concrete example. I'm glad you talked about Berlin. I'm happy to talk, tell that story to the listeners a bit more. But the, we are the loneliest society that has ever existed. There is a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, mm. the most common answer is none. Right? It's not the average, but the most common answer is none. Imagine what life is like if you have nobody to turn to when things go wrong, right? And I've been thinking a lot about this this week because one of the people who taught me most about this sadly died last week. Wonderful man called Professor John Cassiopo, who was at the University of Chicago, who I interviewed a lot, who was the leading expert in the world on loneliness. He showed lots of things. One of the things he demonstrated is that for human beings, being acutely lonely releases as much of the stress hormone cortisol as being punched in the face by a stranger. This is one of the worst things that can happen to us. And he explained to me, you know, why, why are we alive, right? Why do we exist? One of the reasons we exist is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. They were much better at cooperating. They were much better at banding together into tribes. Just like bees need a hive, every human instinct is to form a tribe, right? And if you think about those circumstances where we evolved, if you were separated from the tribe, if you were lonely, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason. You were about to die. You were in terrible danger, right? Those are the impulses we still have. And I was really interested to look at. So Professor Cassiopo proved very clearly that this is a big, this is one of the factors that increases depression and anxiety really significantly. And we know there's lots of evidence loneliness has increased. So it's interesting, well, what's the solution to that, right? What's the antidepressant for that problem? And one of the heroes of Lost Connections is a doctor here in London who pioneered an approach to this. So Sam Everington 
is a doctor in one of the poorest parts of London, in East London, where, I'm, where I lived for a long time. Um, though sadly, he was never my doctor. And Sam was really uncomfortable because like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants, but he had loads of patients coming to him who were really depressed and anxious. And, you know, he could just see that giving them chemical drugs alone wasn't solving their problem. It was giving some of them some relief, but it wasn't solving their problem. So he decided to pioneer a different approach. One day a woman came to him, who I later got to know, called Lisa Cunningham. You know, Lisa had been shut away in her home with terrible depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to her one day, you know, Lisa, I'll carry on giving you drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like, which is kind of scrubland where dogs would go and shit. And Sam said to her, what I'd like you to do is come in twice a week and with a group, and I'll turn out and support you. And with a group of other depressed and anxious people, I'd like you to turn Dog Shit Alley into something beautiful. The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But what she noticed is most of the time, depressed and anxious people are basically only given spaces to go and talk about how depressed and anxious they are. But this group gave them a chance to talk about something else. They decided they were going to learn gardening. They started to put their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's lots of evidence that interacting with the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. They, um, and, and another thing happened. As they got to know each other, they started to form a tribe. And they did what human beings do when we form tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. For example, there was one guy in the group who was sleeping on a public bus. Everyone else in the group was horrified. They were like, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on the bus. They started lobbying the local authority to get him housed. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in years. It made them feel great. And the way Lisa put it to me, as the gardens began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for a kind of obvious reason. It was dealing with the reasons why, some of the reasons why they were so depressed and anxious in the first place, their disconnection from other people and their disconnection from the natural world. And everywhere I went in the world, I really, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco, I really saw this the most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety were the ones that dealt with the reasons why people felt so bad in the first place. Not to say there's no value in chemical antidepressants. There's some value, but the most effective ones are the ones that deal with these deeper underlying reasons. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, and I really like that you get to that point in the book and um, really do address this. So it's like you're pointing towards a direction and, and I understand why, you know, I, I guess my, my question initially um, was, you know, asking, have you thought of any sort of radical um, solutions? And, and of course, it's really hard to know what direction to take because, so, you know, something I resonate with when, when reading your book is you had uh, talked with a, I think she was a former classmate that you were friends with. And you had talked to her, and when you originally knew her, she was a very bubbly and and optimistic person. Um, and then you uh, got back in touch with her, and you were having a conversation with her, and she experienced what would be like very serious bouts of depression and anxiety because of 
the insecurity of of her job. She was working at this job, which was incredibly stressful, and the whole the whole structure of that job just sounded terrifying to me. It was all based on fear and whether or not you can perform is how you know that particular day and how you perform that day and whether it's luck or not. But you know whether you have hours to work the next shift based was based entirely on this. I mean, it was such a such a feeling of insecurity that I got from her, and and anybody in that situation would feel that, you know. It's not, and and for me, as someone who, I mean, I'm I'm not rich by any means, so you know, doing this podcast is my way of expressing my feelings and expressing myself, and and it has allowed me to deal with a lot of my anxiety and my depression that I've definitely experienced in my own life. But I've definitely had those feelings of being at the job. It takes, you know, most jobs take so much of your time and so much of your energy. And you're in this situation of like, am I going to get the hell out of this situation ever? Is this, is this going to, is this ever going to lead to anything fulfilling in my own life? You know, there's countless people that feel that way right now as we speak. And you know, I think that your book is going to definitely turn them on to understanding that, you know, you can't just deal with this problem by going to the doctor and having them giving you and anti- anti- giving you antidepressants. It might help a little bit, but ultimately you need to address this fundamental question, this fundamental issue of the actual way in which we are living our lives in this modern era. And and so, uh, at the very least, what I hope what people get out of your book is to ask that question, you know, because I think what you do a really great job of in your book is pointing people like, hey, look, here's an example of what, what alleviated depression and anxiety in this community and for this individual. This is what they did. Um, I, I do think, though, that um, oftentimes people have very simplistic solutions, and what I think you've done is you've provided a multifaceted, more nuanced perspective on this subject, which I think is incredibly important. Um, but yeah. And, and I love how you get into psychedelics a little bit. Um, I talk a great deal about psychedelics on this podcast. I don't necessarily need to get into that (laughs) with you, but there's, um, some tremendous research that's being done in order to alleviate a lot of the, um, anxiety, depression, and, and trauma that many people experience. Um, so I guess to, to ask you another question here, um, So I want you to explain, if you could, the difference between what you call intrinsic values and extrinsic values, values that we actually have, you know, what we really want to do with ourselves and with our lives that is actually fulfilling for us and what is sort of put on us by, say, advertisers or or so on. So without putting any words in your mouth, I would like you, if you could please explain that a little bit for, for yeah, the so listeners. This is one of the co- nine causes of depression and anxiety that right about lost connections. And one of the ways to help me to understand it is we all know that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? I say this to someone who basically ate at KFC every day for 10 years, right? So there's no sense of superiority. Yeah. One day, yeah. I, uh, Christmas Eve 2009, I went to my local KFC at lunchtime and I gave my standard order, which is so disgusting I won't even repeat it. And... Um, the guy behind the counter said, oh, Johan, I'm really glad you're here. Wait, wait a minute. And went back and I was like, what's going on? And he came back with loads of his colleagues and a massive Christmas card, which they had all signed and they'd written in it to our best customer. And my heart absolutely sang. Like, <laughs> Something has gone really wrong here. But the, the, 
so we all know that's happened. We all know that junk food appeals to the part of us that needs food, but it, you know, makes us sick, right? A similar thing mm-hmm. has happened to our values and made us mentally sick. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and how you look to other people, you're going to feel like shit, right? It's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist of what he said. But mm. but weirdly, no one had scientifically investigated it until this incredible guy I got to know called Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College, Illinois. So Professor Kasser <clears throat> knew that there was, this was discovered before him, there's basically two kinds of human motivation, to put it crudely. So imagine if you play the piano in the morning. <clears throat> if you play the piano because you love it and it gives you joy, that's an intrinsic reason to play the piano you're not doing it to get anything out of it you're just doing it for the joy of the experience itself that's what you want right now imagine you play the piano not because you want to but i don't know your parents are really pressuring you to be a piano maestro or uh, you want to impress a woman who's i don't know some kind of piano fetishist or maybe you play in a in a dive bar to to make the rent right that you don't like Mm -hmm. Um, those would be extrinsic reasons to play the piano you're not doing it for the thing itself you're doing it to get something out of it right now obviously we're all a mixture of intrinsic and extrinsic motivations we move throughout our lives we'll have a mixture of both but professor Kasser discovered a series of really important things the first is the more your life is dominated by extrinsic values the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious for reasons that i can explain and also he showed as a society and as a culture we've become much more driven by extrinsic junk values than we were before there's been a really big increase in these junk values. And there's lots of reasons why this is making us not feel good. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is, one of the things that most gives us relief from depression, that most makes us feel satisfied, are what are called flow states. They're when you're doing something you love. For me, it's writing. For other people, it might be running or you know, playing music or whatever. And you're just in the zone and time seems to fall away. And you're just doing the thing you love. You know, We've all had that feeling at some point in our lives. What Professor Kasser found is that people whose lives are dominated by these junk values, these extrinsic values, experience far fewer flow states. And there's many reasons for this. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of straightforward. Imagine you're playing the piano because you love it. And then imagine Mm -hmm. you suddenly think, am I the best piano player in the United States right now? Uh, how are all these other people around me judging my piano playing? Hey, I've got to get someone to film me and put this piano playing on Instagram. How much am I going to get paid for this piano playing? You can see how that would jolt you out of the flow state into this external thinking. Well, that's happening all the time for people who are obsessed with extrinsic values. It makes it makes you feel much worse over time. Another factor is people whose lives are dominated by junk values have a uh, much poorer quality of relationships. So to give an extreme example, in 2009, Melania Trump went and spoke at NYU. And I can't imagine why. And a student asked her, uh, would you have married Donald Trump if he wasn't rich? And she said something like, well, do you think he would have married me if I wasn't beautiful? Now think about what that reveals about the nature of their relationship. It reveals that it's driven entirely by extrinsic junk values. It means Melania Trump knows if she got fat, or burned in a fire or something, it's over. And Donald Trump knows if he stops being rich and having status, it's over, right? Mm-hmm. You can see how that would be a much more insecure relationship than people who would say, well, I love him because he's my, I just love him. I get mm-hmm. joy in being around him. And, you know, you can see how, how different that is. And you can see why that would be a more insecure relationship. 
we're all, as a culture, becoming more like the relationship between, I mean, they're extreme, but between Donald and Melania Trump, we've all moved somewhat in that direction. It's made our relationships more insecure. It's made us feel worse. So this is one of these factors, this kind of junk values, this, this, this belief that life is about money and status has really driven up our depression and anxiety crisis. And so that's one of the nine factors that I talk about. Yeah. Well, let me, I don't know if you feel comfortable even exploring this territory with me, but, um, you know, like you discussed, you know, people are becoming increasingly more depressed, increasingly more anxious. What do you think this is leading to? I mean, I, I, I look around America right now, and, and I know a lot of it is fueled by um, um, a media that is obsessed with crisis and obsessed with you know, violence and all that as well. So it, we tend to see the worst things that are happening around us versus, you know, some of the more benign or, or okay things that are happening um, in our country. But, um, you know, I mean, there, there's some very serious crises that are seem to be emerging within, at least I can say, within the United States. Um, and, and, you know, and just walking around in day-to-day life, I know so many people that are experiencing anxiety and depression um, and I've been one of those people and, and I've been able to, to cope with it a little bit better now as an adult, but ultimately I've, I've had my own very severe bouts of depression. Um, but I mean, it's like, I, I don't know if you even feel comfortable answering this, but it's like, what, I don't even know how to even ask this question, but it's like, are we, I feel like we're leading towards a cliff almost like we're going towards something that just you can't even come back from. And, and, and I think that maybe with the election of Donald Trump, this is sort of an indication that we have reached a new and not just with him, but it's like a new low, so to speak. And no, I, I think we ha- I understand the point you're making. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we need to be careful about this. So, Everyone listening to this show knows that they have natural physical needs. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If mm-hmm. I put them away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. Mm-hmm. There's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel that you have a future that makes sense. Our culture is good at lots of things. There are actually some very positive trends in our culture. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And that is producing all sorts of apparent pathologies, whether it's our depression epidemic, our addiction epidemic. It's not the only thing that's going on in either of those things, but it's, I think it's the primary driver. One of them is the very deep political crisis we're in. A society where people, you know, I think a lot about, in the run-up to the election, I was in spent some time in West Cleveland with a group of people I'm writing about for another project um, who do deep canvassing work. And we were on a street in West Cleveland in a neighborhood called Slavic City, which was like Detroit without the poetry of the ruins, you know, a mm-hmm. long street where a third of the houses had been abandoned, a third had been demolished, and a third still had people living in them, often in really awful circumstances. And there was one house where we knocked on the door and there was a woman who I discovered from speaking her, to her was the same age as me. I was 37 at the time. I would have guessed from looking at her, she was 60, right? She'd had mm-hmm. a really, I don't know what happened, but she'd evidently had a very hard life. And she was actually very intelligent, very articulate, very angry. She wasn't a Trump supporter, but she was determined not to vote. And we're talking, and she was talking about what the area used to be like for her parents and grandparents. 
And then she made this verbal slip that really stayed with me. She meant to say, she talked about how like they used to be able to get secure jobs and things. She, she meant to say when I was young, what she actually said is when I was alive. Mm. And it really hit me. That's how a lot of people felt. And, you know, you can, as you can guess, I was there to try to get her to not vote for Trump. And certainly I would have want, I wanted her to vote for Hillary. Um, I was more a Bernie person, but, you know, obviously Hillary Clinton was to me radically better than Donald Trump. And, you know, she just said, look at my street, look at it, you know, and I can understand if you live in a culture, although I desperately think she made the wrong choice in not voting, you know, if you live in a culture that's not meeting people's basic psychological needs, you're going to get a lot of people who say, just let it burn, let it burn. What's it doing for me? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. It's not irrational, and it's not that those people are stupid or racist. Outside, need to stop talking about them that way. Is that their needs are not being met, and so I think we're in dangerous times. But I don't think it means. I mean, every alarm bell is ringing. The most powerful mm-hmm. person in the world is Donald Trump. Um, like we're speaking a couple of weeks after the Arctic was 20 degrees warmer than it should be at this time of year. There are mm-hmm. all sorts of terribly disturbing signs. But equally, the advantage to the alarm bells going off is, okay, at least it's clear that what we're doing is that one in five Americans will take a psychiatric drug in their lifetime. Something's gone really wrong, right? And mm-hmm. the advantage to things going really wrong, I wish they hadn't, but the advantage to things going really wrong is at least the nature of the problem becomes clear. Now, I'm not one of those leftists who say the worse things get, the better they'll get. I don't believe that. Generally, the worse things get, the worse they get, right? But mm-hmm. the advantage to this is it shows how deep the problem is. And one of the reasons why I'm not totally pessimistic is because I'm a gay man and I'm 39 and I've seen the world transformed in my lifetime, right? One of the stories I tell in the book is my friend Andrew Sullivan's story. You know, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive in 1994. His first thought was, I deserve this, because he'd been raised in such a homophobic environment. He was watching his friends die all around him, and he went to a little place in, in Cape Cod called Provincetown to die. And as the last thing he thought he'd ever do, he decided to write a book about a crazy, seemingly utopian idea, one that no one had ever written a book about before. He wrote a book suggesting the idea of gay marriage, right? He was convinced, well, it's too late for me, it's too late for anyone alive now, but maybe somewhere down the line someone will pick up this idea long after I'm gone, right? When I get mm-hmm. pessimistic about this, I try to imagine going back in time and saying to Andrew, okay, Andrew, you're not going to believe me, but 26 years from now, A, you're going to be alive, good news, B, you're going to be married to a man, C, the Supreme Court of the United States is going to quote this book that you're writing now in a court case making it mandatory for every state to introduce gay marriage. And I'll be with you the day after when you get an invitation to go to the White House, which will be lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag to go and celebrate what you and so many other people have achieved. Oh, and by the way, the president is going to invite you to do that. He's going to be black, right? <laughs> it sounded yeah. like the most ridiculous science fiction you can imagine. It happened. It happened because a lot of gay people decided to be really brave and a lot of heterosexual people decided to open their hearts to them. Um, incredible changes can happen, changes for the better, changes for the worst. They, cha- they, they change whether or not we, we band together and fight for them. So I'm mm. actually 
optimistic that some of these things can be solved. I go through seven different kinds of solutions to depression and anxiety, uh, many of which have been tried in different, all of which have been tried in different parts of the world, which we know work. As we join this fight, more solutions will become clear. But no one needs to be pessimistic about this. Um, they're dangerous times, but they are potentially great times. And, you know, think about, uh, you know, I've been following very closely these incredible kids from Parkland in Florida who give you such hope, who've been so extraordinary in their advocacy of gun control, um, who are so articulate and so extraordinary um, and are really opening people's hearts. All sorts of amazing things can happen when you fight for them. I'm afraid I have to do another interview in, in just a minute, Patrick. Um, sorry. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. I knew we had about 40 minutes and we're about into about, we're about 40 minutes into this okay. thing. So, um, I do thank you for, for sharing some time with me and for, for doing this. Uh, we had scheduled this a few months in advance. So the fact that I was able to talk to you and, and you were so kind to spend time with me means a great deal to me. So I, I thank you. Um, oh, well, thank you so much for engaging deeply with the book and, um, um, and, and, and for thinking about it so deeply. And, and uh, I should just say, can my publishers tell me if I don't say this, anyone who wants any more information about where to get the book or the audio book or to find out what a big range of people have said about the book from Naomi Klein to Hillary Clinton to Elton John to Ariana Huffington can go to www.thelostconnections.com where they can take a quiz to see how much they know about depression and anxiety. They can listen to audio of a lot of the amazing people we've talked about. Um, they can watch videos, they can see where to follow me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Patrick. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week, and as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude, but take it!